Today is our second week in Romans chapter 8, but I want to begin uh, this morning with a story from uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8. After Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives where he had been praying, he was met in the temple courts by a group of Pharisees and, and teachers of the law. These men had devised a scheme uh, to trap Jesus. They'd caught a woman in adultery and, and they brought her to Jesus with a question. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? The fact that the woman had been caught in the act means that the man was also caught, uh, right? But he was nowhere to be found. He may have even been part of the plot. Some have speculated that he was in on it, that it was a, a setup just to get this woman to take her to Jesus. So clearly these men didn't really care about the law. They were only interested in trapping Jesus. And, and it was a very clever trap. On the one hand, Jesus was known for being compassionate. So he, wouldn't, uh, he would have been expected to forgive the woman. But if he did, he would have been accused of violating or, or disregarding God's law. What kind of prophet would do that? He would be discredited as a teacher sent from God. But on the other hand, if he condemned the woman, the Jewish leaders could, could laugh him in scorn and, and mock his words, saying, Come unto me, all you are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will uh, stone you. So these men thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. But if you've read the story, if you know the story, you know how it ends. Jesus kneels down. He begins writing on the ground with his finger. Scripture doesn't tell us what he's writing, but it probably has something to do with the sins of these men because they all start leaving one by one, oldest to the youngest. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus fulfilled the law by demanding that all its requirements be met. Let those who witness the sin, that's in the law, come forth, be the first ones to throw the stones as the law requires. But, but let's be sure that you're not guilty even of this sin yourself. Maybe one of the witnesses was one of the men that was committing adultery. So when the accusers failed to come forward, Jesus judged this woman not on the basis of the law, which she had broken, but on the basis of his coming death for sinners. He judged her in the same way that he's going to judge us. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She, she said, No one, Lord. Notice, notice she calls him Lord. I don't know if I'm taking this too far, but I take that to mean that, that like the thief on the cross, somewhere in this process, this woman has put her trust in Christ. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. I tell this story because it illustrates a truth that we find in the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. The truth that for those who are in Christ, for those that have come to Christ, who, who've trusted in Jesus Christ, God provides both forgiveness for our sins and freedom from sin. Both of which are necessary if we're going to overcome the actual sinful acts in our lives. First comes forgiveness. Jesus said to the woman who, who calls him Lord, neither do I condemn you. 
This parallels Romans 8.1, which we looked at last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who call Christ Lord, for those who are in Christ, for those who've been justified, declared righteous by God, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, there's now, today, and forevermore no condemnation. No experiencing the wrath of God in this life or in the life to come. No eternal death. No eternal separation from God. No hell. And last week, I argued that knowing and trusting in your your no condemnation, the fact that you are no longer under condemnation, is the first step to overcoming the sin in your life. Because Romans 8.1 means that even and especially when you sin, when you're caught in sin, that Jesus says to you, like He said to the woman in John 8, neither do I condemn you. In Christ, we're forgiven, and therefore when we sin, instead of running from God, which is maybe our natural impulse, we need to remember we're not condemned for this sin, and we can turn around, and we can run to God, and we can stay in relationship with God, we can confess our gods, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can receive His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His power. God delivers you from your sin, and He empowers you to fight against sin. So the first step, and this is important, you know, and we'll see how important it is in a moment, but the first step to overcoming sin is knowing and living based on the truth that you are forgiven, that you're not condemned for that sin in Jesus Christ. That was last week. This week, we come to to the second step. The second step to overcoming sin is knowing... And living based on the truth that you've been freed from your sin. You've been set free from sin. This is illustrated by Jesus' words to the woman in John chapter 8. From now on, sin no more. Jesus doesn't just say, you're not condemned for your sin. I don't care what happens now. He says, you are not condemned. From now on, sin no more. We need to get this. This is the, the, the deeper truth of the Christian faith. The Christian life is not just being forgiven for your sins and saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen, that's true. The Christian life is also being freed from your sin and sanctified by the continual work of the Holy Spirit in your life. God did not declare you to be righteous and save you save you from the condemnation of your sins so that you might continue living an unrighteous life. God declared you to be righteous and saved you from your condemnation so that you might be free to become righteous through a process that we call sanctification. More about that as we go. Jesus says to all who come to faith in Him, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. And it's my prayer as we, as we look closer at Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4, to that God will use these words, His Word, to establish in our hearts and minds both our forgiveness, the fact that we're forgiven for our sins, we are no longer under condemnation for sin, and our freedom from sin, so that in 
Christ Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we can fight and be victorious over the sin in our lives. And that brings us to the first point for today. If we're going to live in freedom from sin, we must first know the fact of freedom from sin. The fact of our freedom from sin. Remember from Romans 8.1 last week, we are forgiven for our sin, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now in Romans Chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, Paul declares that there is also freedom from sin. Forgiven for sin, freedom from sin. He begins by stating the fact. Here it is. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's look first at what we've been set free from. In Christ Jesus, for the Christian, We've been freed from the law of sin and death. So what does the law of sin and death mean? What what is it? What is it referring to? I think the answer is found if we look back into chapter 7. In Romans 7, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here Paul uses the phrase, the the law of sin. I think this is the same as the law of sin and death in Romans 8.2. He adds death because death is the inevitable outcome of our sin. So what is the law of sin? Paul says in Romans 7, verse 23, that it, it dwells in our members. It exists, it lives, it's, it's set up residence in our members, in our flesh. In other words, as we saw in chapter 7, the word law here doesn't refer to the, the Mosaic law. Sometimes Paul uses the word law referring to the Old Testament, the law of Moses, but this isn't one of those cases. He's speaking of a, a principle, something that's always true. That's, it's a law, it's, it's, it's true. The law of sin is an indwelling principle, or, or we could even call it a power, that's at work in our members, in our body. It's at war with myself. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, Romans chapter 7. The inner me, there's this struggle with, with my, my members, my body, my flesh, this, this sin dwelling in me, and, and my true me. The sin dwelling in my body, its purpose is to draw me to do evil, to draw me to do sin. Put simply, the law of sin and death is the indwelling power of sin that leads to death. Now let's look at what or who sets us free from this indwelling power. There's this power that we've been freed from, and we've been freed by the law of the Spirit of life. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what does the law of the Spirit of life refer to? Well, it makes sense that that word law, same same passage here, that phrase would have the same meaning as the word law in the phrase the law of sin and death. So law means this indwelling principle or this power. Sin works in a certain way. Within our, within our members, within our body, uh, with a certain power, and it leads to death. That's called the law of sin and death. And the Spirit of God works in a certain way with a power leading to life. That's called the law of the Spirit of life. So the law of the Spirit of life is the indwelling power, the indwelling Holy Spirit power that leads to life. Instead of sin leading us to death, we now have the Spirit 
leading us to life. Both, and this, we'll get this here, we'll get this even more as we go on, but, but when, he's, when he says life, I think he's referring to both the abundant life that God intends for us to be living right now, and the eternal life when we'll, we'll live in His presence. Sometimes we just focus on that eternal life. I think we'll see today, he's talking about in here and now as well. And at least one way the Spirit leads us into this uh, abundant life, into the eternal life, is by setting you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice that, the, the, uh, that like forgiveness last week, no condemnation, applies only to those who are in Christ Jesus. Freedom from the law of sin and death comes only to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ, if you're outside of Christ Jesus, if you haven't trusted in Christ Jesus, you're still under the law of sin and death. That power is still in control of your life. If you've been justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then then and only then does the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. And what that means is that for those who are in Christ, for Christians, if you will, there is a, a new spiritual reality. There was a time when we were under condemnation, when we were held captive, if you will, to the law of sin and and death. There was a time when the, the power of sin reigned and ruled. It was in control. It had authority in your life. And death was its only and inevitable outcome. But in Christ, we're now set free from that power, from the power of sin We're set free from its inevitable results of of death. As Paul said in in Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. In Christ, we died to sin. And by the power of the Spirit, we are now set free from sin. Sin no longer rules in our lives. We no longer must submit to the power of sin. Instead, we're under a new ruler, a new power. The law of the Spirit of life is now the principle or the power in which our our lives must function, must live. That's who we are. Because in Christ, when we come to Christ, we're given the Spirit of God. Have you ever uh, thought about that? Have you ever read Genesis I just thought of this, so we'll see where we go. Genesis 1.1 and following. Check this out. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was there in this process of creation. And that Spirit of God is now given to us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, there's a process here, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's like a down payment for, for everything that's to come. 
You're given the Spirit of God. That same Spirit that's hovering over the surface of the deep. That same Spirit that then was part of the creation. When we hear and believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when we're in Christ, we immediately are sealed. We receive the promised Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes this law, this principle, this this power of the indwelling Spirit of life. The Spirit, I don't know, we could say His goal, His purpose in in our lives is to bring life. Life in this world. Life in the next. You can think about it this way. You've heard the the saying, there's a new sheriff in town. Under the old sheriff, we were held captive to the law he enforced. This law of sin and, and death. But the new sheriff, the Holy Spirit, brings a new law. The law of the Spirit of life. The new sheriff boots out the old sheriff. He's out of office now. I don't know, there's a lot of sheriff signs around town. Well, there, there was an election not in Riverside, but here, and, and the Holy Spirit won in our lives if you're in Christ. And the old sheriff, the law of sin and death, and his law were booted out, setting us free. We're now set free from this law of sin and death. However, and this is the issue, this is the thing we have to deal with, that old sheriff, he, he, he's not the sheriff anymore. He doesn't have power, but he still, he still hangs around. And his law of sin and death are still hanging around. Even, even though he's no longer in power, he still seeks to lead us into sin. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 7, right? There's the, this battle. This, this, this law of, of sin and death continues its onslaught. But now, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can fight the old sheriff. It's Romans chapter 8. We can live in the Spirit. We're forgiven for our sin and we are freed from the power of sin. So we can now be victorious over our sin. That's the fact of our freedom from sin. And, and we'll see, more, we'll see how, how this more, is more clearly worked out when we get to verse 4, our third point. But first, in, in verse 3, Paul wants to be very clear about the foundation of our freedom from sin. In verses 1 and 2, Paul states two important truths. We'll keep going over this. We we need to get this. That for those who are in Christ, first, there's forgiveness of sin. No condemnation. And second, there's freedom from sin. By the power of the Spirit, we've been set free from the power of sin. And once these truths are established... Before he goes on to explain how we are transformed by these truths, we'll see that... He wants to be very clear about their origin, their foundation. He wants to be very clear about who gets the credit, who gets the glory for these, for our forgiveness and our freedom. Is there something I, is there something you did to deserve forgiveness? Is there something you've done to to deserve being freed from, from condemnation and from the power of sin? Not according to Paul. We touched on this last week. But let's see it again. Verse 3, for God. starts for God. This is going to be all about God. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Points back to Romans 7. The law is good and holy and righteous, but it's weakened in our lives by our flesh. And this is a major problem for those who are not in Christ, for those who are outside of Christ. Because if you're not in Christ 
then your only hope, the only thing you could possibly trust in for overcoming sin and saving yourself is keeping the law, obeying the law. But that is no hope at all. Because of our flesh, within our flesh, uh, your members dwells this law of sin, which makes it uh, absolutely impossible to keep the law for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, the law cannot save anyone from condemnation or free anyone from their sin. It can only reveal our sin and our condemnation. But God saves us, not by anything we do, but by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. God sent His Son to become uh, one of us in the likeness of sinful man and to become a, a sin offering. By going to the cross, by dying for our sins, Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice. And in so doing, He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus' condemnation of sin in the flesh means two things for us who are in Christ Jesus. First, And this is what we saw last week. This is what Paul says in verse 1. It means that sin's condemning effects no longer apply. Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God we deserved. He took our condemnation. Therefore, in Christ, we are no longer under condemnation. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And second, and this is what we saw in verse 2, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh means we are no longer under the control of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. By the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we've been set free from the indwelling power of sin. Sin is still there, but we don't have to bow to it. It's no longer our master. In the power of the Spirit, we can fight against it and we can achieve victory over it. So because God sent Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, there is no condemnation for sin. And because God gives us His Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no enslavement to sin. In Christ, we are forgiven for our sins, and we've been set free from our sins. All glory and honor for our salvation and for our sanctification, this becoming righteous in Christ goes to the one and only triune God. He's all there. Glory to God the Father for sending His Son. Glory to the Son for sacrificing His life for our sins. Glory to God for giving us His Spirit. And glory to the Spirit for setting us free from sin's indwelling power and and replacing it with His power to overcome sin and death. God did it all. He provides our forgiveness for sin and our freedom from sin. And because of this, we're saved. We we, we spend eternity in the presence of God. Amen? But that eternity begins now. And that's the thing we need to, uh, to know and focus on and be clear on. We are in Christ now, today. And our lives are being transformed now, today. And in verse 4, Paul begins to describe that transformation. He describes the the fruit of freedom from sin. This is what freedom from sin looks like. And he begins by answering a question. Why did God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, this is verses 2 and 3, why did God... uh, 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 
free us from both condemnation and from the power of sin? Paul answers, this is why, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, the beginning of verse 4 takes a little bit of explanation to fully understand. So, if you haven't been listening, well, can't do anything about that, but, but you need to pay close attention here. Some include this, this half, first half of verse 4. It would include it in, in what was my second point, the foundation of our freedom from sin. That Christ, through his perfect obedience to the law and his sacrificial death on the cross, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. He did it for us. We couldn't do it ourselves. He did it for us. And that is certainly true. Christ did perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law for us. Romans 5.19 says, Through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Because of Christ's obedience, you who trust in Him are made righteous. When Christ gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins, He fulfilled the law for us that we might be made righteous. So if you're in Christ, then the law has been fulfilled for you by Christ. You will not be judged based on your ability to keep the law, but on Christ's perfect obedience to the law. Yes, praise God, all that is true. But I don't think that's the point of verse 4. And the reason is, it doesn't fit the, the, the flow or the wording of the verse. Specifically one word. Sometimes things hang on one word. And that word is in. Notice verse 3 and 4 says that God's purpose for sending Jesus as a sacrifice to condemn sin in the flesh is in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled not for us, but in us. That word in means that something actually takes place in your life. And that something is the fulfilling, the fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law. This is the fruit. This is the result. This is the outcome of our freedom from sin. The fruit of the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled for us. We get that. That's what Christ did. That's why we're saved. He fulfilled it perfectly for us. We're declared righteous because Christ fulfilled the law for us. But the fruit of that is that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us as well. Do you see the difference? It's the difference between salvation and sanctification. It's the difference between being saved, going to heaven, and the process of becoming righteous here and now. When Christ on the cross fully met the righteous requirements of the law for us, and when we accept Him by faith, we accept that by faith, we are in an instant justified. We're in an instant declared righteous. We're saved from the condemnation of our sins, saved to eternal life. But that's only the beginning of the story. It continues with the process of sanctification, this process of becoming righteous, this process of becoming who you are in Christ, this process of becoming who you truly are. Paul is saying that Christ's death on the cross was not only for salvation. We all get that. We all know that. That's the gospel. 
But the gospel is more than that. Uh, Christ's death on the cross was also for our sanctification. Christ died so that we might be declared righteous and that we might become righteous. That we might be freed from our sin and that we might live a sin-free life. That's a process, by the way. Not immediate. The one is immediate. You're immediately saved. Sanctification is a process. That we might grow in our obedience to God, fulfilling His righteous requirements found in His law. We still, we still must uh, look to the law. And if you remember, I don't know, it was a month ago, we talked about for the Christian, what does the law mean? The law isn't the law includes principles and things found in the Old Testament law, but it boils down to the, the law of love. Are you loving God? With your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you loving your neighbor as Christ loved? So are we growing in uh, the law of love? Jesus took the wrath, the condemnation that we deserved upon Himself, not only to pay the penalty for our sin. Picture Christ on the cross. And we've always talked about, we always know, and He paid the penalty for my sin. Amen. But not only did He pay the penalty for our sin, that we might be forgiven for our sin, but, he, but that we might be freed from our sin. That we might be empowered to overcome sin. That we might obey God so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not to earn our salvation, but to live that abundant life that Christ has given us here and now. Jesus died so that you and I might be saved and sanctified. In Christ we're declared righteous that we might become righteous. Do we get it? I'm actually We understand? Got it? Okay. For those that said no, I have a little illustration. Think of it this way. And it's not the greatest. Sometimes I get illustrations out of books and stuff, and they're pretty helpful, and then sometimes I have to make them up, and I wonder, hmm, is this going to hit the mark? I made this one up. Uh, So don't uh, be offended when I compare you and me to dogs. Okay. Suppose you worked at an animal shelter, and one day they bring in a, a very bad dog. Let's be obvious and say his name is Sinner. Sinner has fleas, he's not potty trained, he barks constantly, and he's bitten several people. And so by the animal shelter's law, by the law of the land, it's determined that sinner must die. He's scheduled to receive a, I don't know how they kill dogs these days, a lethal injection, I don't know. Now further suppose that you choose to have mercy on sinner. You rescue him from receiving this lethal injection. You save his life. Now the question is, did you save sinner so he could continue to spread fleas, pee on the carpet, bark all night long, and bite more people? Of course not. Not only save sinner from death, you saved him to have a new life, a new doggy life for sinner. So the first thing you do is change his name. You no longer call him sinner. Instead, you, you, in hope, call him saint. And you put saint into a process so that, so that he might live up to his name. 
You get him to defleed. You train him not to pee in the house, not to bark at everything, and, and definitely not to bite anyone. Now, Saint will not always uh, uh, live up to his name. Sometimes act like sinner. But you saved him, and you'll continue to work with him. Continue to lead him through the process of becoming a, a good dog. Now, I know this illustration isn't perfect, but what I want us to see is that Jesus didn't just die to rescue us sinners from death, leaving us in our sinful state. He died that we might enter into this process, uh, training, if you will, of becoming saints, of becoming who He's declared us to be, of becoming who He's changed our name to be. And so when we disobey God, uh, we need to think about this. This is motivation. Motivation time uh, for, for not sinning. When you disobey God, when I disobey God, when we sin, when, when you act like the sinner you once were, know that you're rebelling against the purpose of Jesus' death for you. Jesus died that you might be freed from sin, and when you go back to sin, you're rebelling against that purpose. You're saying, I'll take the rescue. Good job, Jesus. I love that no condemnation stuff. That forgiveness that will lead to my eternal life and my salvation, I'm, I'm good with that. But I'm less interested in this process of sanctification. I'm less interested in becoming actually righteous. You're saying to Jesus, I'm very happy that you declared me to be righteous, that you changed my name from sinner to saint, but I, I don't really want to live righteously. And what I think Paul wants his readers to see is that we can't do that. We can't live like that. That's not who we are. We can't accept forgiveness for our sin without being freed from our sin. Freedom from sin is not something we just say. It's something we must live. It's not who we are in Christ Jesus. To accept forgiveness, but not live in freedom. We see this clearly in the second half of verse 4. Christ's sacrificial death condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us, that we might enter into this process of being transformed, that we might obey the law, especially for us, that law of love. And who are the us? The us are those who are in Christ, those who've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The second half of verse 4, and we need to get this, is both a, a description of who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ is someone who doesn't walk according to the flesh, but walks according to the Spirit. But it's also a prescription. You know, the doctor gives you a prescription. It's a, it's a remedy. It's, a, it's instructions for how we are now to live in Christ. In Christ, we are no longer to walk. And that word walk, and he'll even use it in verse 5, he'll change it to live. It means to live. It's sort of a description of, of day-to-day living. Instead of... Insti- mm. Okay. In Christ, we no longer walk or, or live according to the flesh... We're no longer under the power of the, uh, of the law of sin in our members, in our flesh. We're no longer subject to the rule of sin in our life through the flesh. Instead, we walk, we live according to the Spirit. 
We're now under the law, the indwelling power of the spirit of life. We're not set free from nothing. We're not set free into a void. We're set free from sin and we come under the authority. We live under the power of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from this indwelling power of sin and death. In the Spirit, by the Spirit, we're empowered to overcome sin and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That's the description of who you are, who I am, who we are in Christ Jesus. But as I said, it's also a prescription for living in Christ. This is the way the righteous requirements of the law are are being fulfilled in us. We no longer walk. We no longer live a life dictated by the desires of the flesh. But instead, we walk, we live a life dictated by the Spirit of God. And how do we do that? How do we experience the fruit of our freedom from sin? How do we experience the fulfillment of the the righteous requirements of the law in us? How do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? How do we live life in the Spirit? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. That's what Paul describes throughout Romans chapter 8. So we've got a bit of a a cliffhanger here, if you will. But let me leave you with this. It's clear from Romans 7 and so far in Romans 8 that there's this battle raging in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our flesh, and in our inner self, that, that the power of indwelling sin that still resides in our flesh, it's been dethroned, but it's still there, is at war with the power of the indwelling Spirit of God which is now part of our inner being. It's part of who we truly are in Christ. Now in chapter 7, we saw the results of trying to win that battle on our own. We saw that even though our inner being desires to obey God, we continue to fall into sin. We continue to be and to live wretched, miserable lives. Even the Christian, if you're trying to overcome sin, obey the law in your own power, The end will be misery and and wretchedness. But now in Romans 8, Paul is revealing to us a different approach to the battle against sin. We are so often, so I'm just saying, we are so often stuck in chapter 7 trying to strategize and, and win this battle on our own. The key to the battle, the key to achieving victory is not found in you or me. It's found in the Spirit of God. It's found in life in the Spirit. We need to get this and get it good, and we'll get it more as we go on. The battle against sin is a supernatural battle for our hearts and our minds. It will not ultimately be won by by, uh, self-imposed guilt, uh, self-discipline, or even mutual accountability. All those things can be helpful. But ultimately, we will never overcome our sin through our own efforts. We will only overcome our sin when we allow ourselves to be transformed by the power of God's Spirit. It may sound counterintuitive, but, to, to, but, but victory, victory over sin begins with surrender. Not surrender to sin, but surrender to the Spirit. 
For us to be victorious, victorious over sin, we must surrender to the Spirit of God. I know this is true from God's Word, and I know this is true from my own life. I experience freedom from sin, victory over sin, only to the extent that I surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. There's a reason why the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 begins, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then there's more. I only experience, I'm only able to love God, I'm only able to love you people, or any people, through the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit of God working in my life. I can on my own, now this I can do, strategize for hours about how to avoid temptation. I can create accountability. And I will, and I have, and you can achieve some success that way. Some success in not committing any given sin for a time. But the success is limited to my external actions. In my heart, I still have this pull, this desire to sin. I may be able to resist it, but it's still there. It's it's not until I fall on my face before a holy God in surrender. It's not until I call out to God to fill me with His Spirit that real and lasting change begins. Not just external avoidance of sin, but internal transformation of the sinner, of me. It's not... It's to the extent that I surrender to God that I'm able to walk according to the Spirit. Next week, we'll, we'll look deeper into, into what, must, what, what we must specifically surrender. We, we have to surrender everything, but, but Paul uh, gives us a specific thing to start with. If we're going to walk, if we're going to live according to the Spirit, what, 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 must, what must we surrender? Let me give you a hint. It's between your ears and it rhymes with kind. Your mind. That's where we're going to go next week. You must surrender your mind to the Spirit of God. But now as we close, I'd just like to pray for us. Walking according to the Spirit is not something we can accomplish in my own power. It says, walk according to the Spirit. I can't go, okay, I'm going to walk. You know, put on my training shoes. You know, stretch out a little bit. You can tell I haven't really stretched in a while because huh? I'm doing this. What is that? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to walk according to the Spirit. Can't do that. We have to surrender. We have to fall on our face. Understand that we can't accomplish this in our own power. And so I'd like to pray that God would give us His power to surrender ourselves to Him. That God would call us And God would empower us to walk according to His Spirit. That we might, this week and in weeks to come, experience this fruit of our freedom from sin. That that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If that's your desire, if that's your desire to to enter into this training, and to, to, to enter into this process of sanctification, to walk according to the Spirit, to obey the law of love, to grow in your obedience to God. If that's your desire, then it will only be accomplished through the Spirit working in your heart and your mind. So, and if that's your desire, I just ask that you would stand as I, as I pray.
Lord God, I pray for myself and I pray for us. I pray that we would walk according to your Spirit. That we would disregard that you, by your power, would just fill us with your Spirit, Lord, even now. That we would be so full of your Spirit that the desires of the flesh, that walking according to the flesh just sounds uh, totally unappetizing. Lord, I pray you would fill us with your Spirit. You would empower us by your Spirit, that we might walk, that we might live according to your Spirit, that the, that, the, that the law of love might be fulfilled in our lives, that you would empower us. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I love myself on my own, but that I would love you and that I would love my brothers and sisters in Christ and I would love those who need to know you and I would declare your word to them, Lord. Give us that power through the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.